can have clarity. I know what makes companies stay and grow. And to me, it's the SOC acronym that I use. And I don't care what company it is. I mean, I could go tomorrow and find a company in some other trade and I can implement SOC and I know that over time I will grow that business. Welcome back to another episode of the Contractor Momentum Podcast. Yes, it is a new name, formerly the Home Pro Success Show. I explained the reasoning behind the name change in the last episode I did, episode 31. So uh, possibly, if you haven't listened to that already, possibly take a step back, listen to that, so you understand the why behind the name change from Home Pro Success to Contractor Momentum. That said, not all of our material is updated yet. So some of the graphic design stuff, some of the audio stuff still says Home Pro Success. I'm sure you'll notice that when the podcast first segues into my conversation with today's guest, I introduce it as the Home Pro Success Show. Some of those little details still have to be worked out and updated. But by this point, we've updated the name on iTunes and major podcast players from Home Pro Success to Contractor Momentum, and the rest will be following shortly. So Start thinking of Contractor Momentum. Of course, our awesome collaborative Facebook group is still thriving. So if you're not already a member, look for the link somewhere around this episode and join. You can connect with myself and today's guest Gokul and over 1,500 other trades business owners on the topic of marketing and sales. And naturally, of course, operational topics do come up in there as well. So when you want to ask somebody, hey, what would you do in this situation or what should you do? You've got 1,500 of us out there that can provide our insight. Today, I chat with a guest who owns trades businesses as an investment, meaning that he is far out of the day-to-day operations and largely manages remotely by numbers. Some of the things we cover that I really, really, really like here are how he handles his first meeting with staff after buying the company. I'm talking at this point, the staff didn't even know the company was for sale and now boom, there's a new owner. His meeting schedule with staff and his KPI acronym SOC, which we discuss at length. Let's jump into it. Gokul, welcome to the Home Pro Success Show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Thank you. So why don't you share with our listeners, as we do customary on this podcast, share with our listeners your story, where you're at in business right now. Yeah, I own a couple of companies. I own a company called Restoration Brokers of America. We are the largest business brokers of restoration companies in the country. So we help people in that company prepare for an exit, how to prepare your company for an exit what buyers are looking for. We help people get financed and we help them close. And so mm-hmm. we do more restoration transactions than anybody in the country. I also own a holding company called Omaha Holdings and I own a screen repair business underneath that and hoping to maybe add some other home services companies to expand that. So I'm an operator and an investor at the same time. <laughs> nice, nice. So for those of you out there listening, he said screen repair. I am also in the screen repair business. We are, we're not yes. competitors. We do operate in two different markets, but that's how Gokul and I connected. He, you know, We're both screen enclosure contractors out there. And he reached out to me one day, a couple of years back. And since then, we've stayed in touch. And I got to say, he's been a wealth of advice. And I look forward to what he's going to share coming up here in the next few minutes on this podcast. So why screen? Let me ask you that. You know, you're, you're a business broker. You've got, you've got the numbers on all these businesses. You know, what made you invest in screen? And I, I'm sure that you really didn't, probably weren't too intrigued by screen. There's nothing intriguing about it. It was probably the numbers. So what was it about it? How did you make that decision? you know, at least to buy that business. Yeah, I tell you quite the contrary. I know you you have a home services Facebook group that's that's fantastic and such so active. So congratulations on that. And I think all of us in the home services business, I think is one of the best industries to be in. You know, you're helping people, you're dealing with people's homes. It's sentimental. People want to take care of their homes. So that's one side of it. I also think it's one of the most profitable areas in business to be in. 
okay, as opposed to, I don't know, a medical billing company or, I don't know, a transportation company. I think home services is fantastic. So all of us who are listening in today and, and who are in this industry, you know, we are in a good, the grass is not greener on the other side. And so when I looked at, you know, I know we always tend to think it's greener, but it's not. You yeah. know, and we always look at, you know, when I looked at screen repair, it was a very, very simple business case. I knew that people won't be able to enjoy their pools without being outside. And for them to be outside without being bit by mosquitoes, you need screens and it tears every five, six years and people have to replace it. And I mean, it was really that simple. <laughs> yeah. And, and I knew that, that if I owned this company for 50 years, you know, maybe the screen technology would change. Maybe the enclosures look different. Maybe it's motorized, but it's still going to be there. The yeah. bugs in Florida are not going to go away. Pools are not going to go away. So that's kind of how I got into it. What were the key numbers you kind of looked at when you're assessing the business? I mean, any business that you're assessing, what are the key numbers that you look at? So I always look at gross profit margins. You know, I always like businesses to have at least a 55% gross margin. Oh, wow. That's high. Yes. You know, I like, you know, 50 to 55 is really where I like it to be. You know, I'm looking at fixed cost versus variable cost. Okay. So I'm looking at what is really fixed and what can I scale up and down as the company goes up and down, you know, because businesses, all businesses go in cycles. So I'm looking for that. And I'm also looking for net margins. And I'm not looking for a company when it comes to net margins, I'm looking for consistency. You know, so if there's a 20% net margin, I'm looking for a company for five years to be hovering around 20% and not all of a sudden go to 40% one year and 10% the next year. You know, I'm looking for a sense of the more boring a company is, the better it is for me, okay, as, a, as, as an investor. And two is I'm always looking at, again, when you talk about offense, defense, a lot of people, when they look at companies, they look at, oh, I can double and triple and quadruple this company, right? They look at the offense part of it. And it's exciting to talk about those things. As an investor, I actually look at something very, very different. I look at what are the chances that are going to zero? Wow. <laughs> you know, and if chances are low, you know, then I know that it's a really, really good investment. Yeah, I will say one of the things that I've seen as I've kind of, you know, looked at other business listings that are out there for sale, one of the things that always scares me is when the business seems like it is too good or it's too exciting. Like when you see a business that's got a profit margin of 30%, you know, or their net, you know, they're saying a net margin of 30% there. It almost seems like, all right, how likely is this that this is going to sustain? You're exactly right. You know, those are what you call unicorns, right? And they make the, the news stories and they make the headlines and they're great bar talk is kind of what I call it. But the real money, you know, is in, in my opinion, is made in singles and doubles, if I use a baseball analogy. You know, people talk about the home runs, but it's really made in the singles and doubles. And that's really where I look to grow my money. And, and, and I've been, you know, reasonably successful. I've <laughs> been reasonably <laughs> successful. Going to humble yourself down there. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to take off the humble for you and say that you've been pretty successful for what oh, I know you. about it. So let's, <laughs> let's get back a couple of years. How long ago did you buy the screen repair business? Yeah, I bought it four years ago. I actually had another broker friend of mine. We were having lunch and he goes, Hey, I got this business you should really take a look at. And I said, yeah, sure. I'll take a look at it. And we looked at it and, 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 and you know, I mean, I decided over a weekend really, you know, and Beyond the financial analysis, I mean, the business case for it was very simple. I mean, there's just a lot of screens that tear every five to seven years and they need replacement. And I always knew that, okay, it's always going to be here. The bugs in Florida are always going to be here. And I just figured as long as I have great customer experience over time, we will do really well with it. 
And just like that, you decided to make an offer on it. Obviously, it looks like it got accepted. Yeah, Thursday. Or it did get accepted. It doesn't look like it. It did. And, uh, yeah, it took me one week to have a meeting with the broker and put it under contract. All that took five days. <laughs> nice. So from my perspective, you made a very, I don't want to say bold, brave, scary leap into something that you basically knew nothing about. Mind you, I've owned a screen enclosure company now for what? 2012, about eight, almost eight years at this point. When I started it, I didn't quite know what I was getting into, but I at least knew how to get the work done. Uh, I knew something about the actual trade. I had trade experience and so did my partner. We we're going in blind from a business perspective. We didn't have that figured out by any stretch of the imagination. And as I've said in many other speakings, it was much harder from a business perspective than I ever could have realized. But we at least had the trade knowledge down. You had no trade knowledge going into this. What was that like for you? Were you worried about anything jumping into it? Because I personally, even at this level, and I've got business experience now, I'm certainly certainly not on the amateur level. And when it comes to business experience, I would still be scared to jump into a trades business that I know nothing about the actual trade. <laughs> you know, that is the general kind of belief, you know, out there that, that, that you got to know how to do the work to own it. And I have a very different point of view on that. You know, I think every company needs a entrepreneur and a CEO to run it. And those skills are very different than someone doing the work. And those skills are very different than someone answering the phone. Like I would be the worst phone operator ever. Because <laughs> okay? I got a short temper. Okay. I know, right? Are, are you going to give me a credit card number and make a deal here? Or are we just wasting time? Or not. Yeah. <laughs> or, 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 you know, yeah, be we've been on this call for, you know, we've been on this call for five minutes. It's a $90 <laughs> service call fee. Do you want it or not? Yeah, there'll be a lot of colorful language coming out. And, and I would be an even worse of a technician, okay? What I do know is, is, is how to have financial discipline and how to market a company and to make sure I can kind of drive it, you know, through the ups and downs of the business and give people opportunity how to do it, you know? And I think that's kind of how I bought it. And I think when people get nervous, the more clear you are on what your skills are and how you can contribute to a company, the less nervous you get. You know what? And, and I could even argue that if you're a great screener and you went and bought a business, there's more risk there because you maybe don't know how to run a business. Yeah, I, I mean, I could, I could see that. Absolutely. I've seen it from my technicians over the years. We've had people that have worked for us, left to start their own thing. And a year or two later, they come back to work for us. Correct. Correct. Happens to me all the time. You know, people think they can get out there and do it better. And that's okay. People have to try. I mean, you and I tried it, you know. And, yeah, yeah, you uh, don't learn if you don't try. You got to do it. But I would argue that, you know, everybody's got the highest and best use, you know, and I think you got to figure out where does the company need you the most? And if you can contribute and, and, and play your role really, really well, then I don't think there's a lot of risk there. Right on. That's a very, very interesting perspective and certainly yeah. opens my eyes and opens my brain and has me thinking because I see it as an extremely risky move getting into a trade you know nothing about. So it's awesome to hear that from you. So let's let's talk about this well, risk here. Question. You know, let's look at it a little bit differently, right? So if you're working for, you know, Gulf Coast Aluminum, mm -hmm. would you rather have an owner that knows how to do P&Ls, marketing, margins, pricing, customer service to make sure that you're a market leader? Or would you rather have an owner that's a great screener but knows none of the other stuff? Gosh, honestly, I can't answer that question because I've, I've pretty much been a business owner for my whole adult life. Right. Every position's got a skill and you got to stay in your lane. 
<laughs> let me let me ask you this. Day one, you take over a screen and, you know, going forward a couple years, were there any were there any problems? Were, was there anything that you realized later that in due diligence didn't come up and was either a, a problem, a legal issue or such, or, you know, a time when you really wished you had actually trade experience? Did any of that type of stuff come up? Yes. You know, there was one issue that came up, which I did not anticipate, which was the company culture was really, really bad. And usually when you buy companies, you know, you don't get to talk to the employees and things are pretty confidential. So when you buy the company and then the next day you go in as the owner is usually the first time you're meeting most of the employees, you know. So the company culture and the morale was really, really bad. You know, I remember going into that first meeting going, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into? <laughs> you know, I really did, you know, but, but you take action as the owner and you say, okay, you own it. And you say, you know, how do I fix it? And we fixed it. You know, we, we, we bought everybody together on a Thursday afternoon. We aired it all out and I kind of laid my vision out. And one of my top three visions for the company was always been to be the best screen repair business to work for in Orlando. I didn't want to be Disney World. I didn't want to be, you know, just a very simple objective. I want to be the best company in my trade, in my city to work for. And I made that my top three initiatives. And three, four years later, you know, everything that we went out to do as far as culture is completely changed. We have senior technicians. We, we have technicians that think for themselves. We, our turnover rate is minimal. I mean, I don't think we've had a turnover in about 12 months now at all. You know, and, and so those are the things you can bring and, and, and make it better. So going back to that meeting, you said that you had, you had a meeting where you're bringing in your visions essentially to change the culture at that. And your, your first thing you just basically said there was, we wanted to be the best green company to work for. What else did you have? How did you change that culture and morale? So you ask the employees, you don't have all the answers. You know, so I asked the employees, I say, hey, you know, I brought everybody together. I made it a mandatory meeting. Okay, this is three days after I owned the company. And I said, you know, we actually closed all our jobs at three o'clock that day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of like how Starbucks shut their door for a day, yeah. you know. We did that. We literally said no more jobs after three. We got everybody back at 3.30. And we sat in a room and I literally had posted notes, these big posted notes. And I had it all over the walls. And I did a meeting. And I said, okay, let's air it out. And I actually had the leadership leave the room, okay? So people could talk frankly, you know? And then the leadership got back in the room. The production manager and the office manager came back into the room. So the production manager and the office manager were already on staff before you bought the company? Yes. Okay. Yes. But I let make them leave. And then, you know, so that's the way you handle it. And you air it all out. And then we had about 50 ideas from our technicians or our, 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 our employees. And then what I really did was just put it in a bracket, you know, like you do a, a basketball bracket. And we just went prioritize them. And we started banging them. And it was small things like having an ice machine in the warehouse. It was making sure that AC was running on all the trucks. It was so little things. And as we started implementing them, then people start getting confidence in my leadership. And I got confidence in their leadership. And all that animosity and all that just slowly, you know, it's like letting an air out of a balloon. It just so slowly. you literally asked him, "Hey, what would you? What would make your experience working here better?" I mean, was that just the question, or that was it? What can we do better at H? Anybody's got any ideas? Let's just write them out, and, and that's what we took to started knocking them off the list one by one. Four ideas that came out. You said fifty-four. Fifty-four ideas that came. Wow. Out. Yeah. And how many of them did you actually implement? 
And how much did it cost you? Let's uh, let's yeah. go with that. We implemented sixteen of them, and it cost me like ten grand for the year. So, <laughs> in terms of the acquisition price, that was not a big number. No, it's not. And and most of the time, when you're building teams, it's it's not a big money thing. I mean, it's it's as simple as getting a two hundred dollar grill and cooking my guys breakfast every one Friday every morning, and just hanging out before they went out on the road. It's like getting an ice machine. It's hundred bucks a month. You lease it. You know, yeah, I mean, we, we have an ice machine. Little, I'll tell you that. It was always the, it's always the little things. And I think the more people felt appreciated, then the word got around. And then we started collecting all the senior texts from people, from owners that were treating them really bad. And that just compounded and compounded. And literally in 12 months, we've had no turnover in our business. Wow. How do I think about it, actually? That's awesome. And just to kind of recap what you just said, one of the things that I heard and I, I've subsequently repeated quite a bit is, you have to be the company that people want to work for. And I think once you think about that, you know, and look at it through that lens, would people want to work here? Recruiting and hiring does get quite a bit easier. Yes. And on the flip side, I say the same thing applies to marketing. You have to be the company that people want to hire. You know, no, no amount of ad spend or magical sauce and advertising is going to make quite a difference as it does just simply being a company that people want to hire being that company you know you, you know it there, there's certain companies in your own daily life that you just want to hire them and you know as a business person we always kind of step back and look at it like all right why do i want to hire them so bad you know and well it's many intangible things it's a lot of branding that's been built up over time often you know a lot of people forget like you said you know people get focused on sales and i want to drive sales and i want to drive sales and i would argue that customer experience is as important of a marketing tool mm -hmm. than your ppc ads you oh know? absolutely <laughs> yeah i will tell you i mean i've been saying this a lot lately you know going back i started gca in 2012 at that time it was very easy to acquire new customers. This is possibly kind of, I don't want to say jaded, but tilted my view. It was really easy to acquire new customers. Online marketing was, it wasn't in its infancy, but it, it was in a better time because it had just passed its infancy. And there was a lot of you know killer opportunity there. All the platforms had many settings. It would be settings and options that were going to be very lucrative and valuable. And you're coming out of the recession. So there weren't many home service companies in that space. So, you know, we're getting online at that point and we're nailing this stuff and it's really cheap and easy to acquire new customers. At this point, our customer experience really doesn't matter because we can, you know, just buy new customers for pennies on the dollar, essentially. Fast forward to 2020, all of these platforms that are online, they're no longer in their early stages. They're, you know, at a maturity phase. So they've increased their advertising costs. That's further driven up by demand. There's more advertisers now. Home services are, you know, in a healthy economy as opposed to, you know, just leaving a poor economy as they were eight or 10 years ago. So we've got more competition for limited space in there. And all these platforms have really reduced the amount of organic exposure that the platforms get. So they're charging for it. They're charging a premium. And we're in such a, we're in a marketplace from an advertising perspective where my focus is now and has been for the last two years on really increasing our customer lifetime value and increasing that customer experience and bringing home that kind of word to mouth customer experience reputation to generate new business as opposed to actually going out there and getting new new customers. I mean, mind you, we still do it, but it is not, it's not as lucrative as it once was. No, it's getting tougher. You hit the nail on the head. Customer acquisition is getting more expensive and it's getting harder and harder for all services companies, you know, because they're all going after the same dollar. But I think with the low hanging fruit is 
also is the customer experience. I think there's very few people that really think about that. You know, is end-to-end customer experience where they become almost a salesperson for you. Mm-hmm. So if you really take care of somebody on one, two, three Main Street, and you know they have twenty neighbors that they're talking to, now you got a salesperson. You know, and that's what I tell my staff. We do about a hundred to about one hundred and twenty-five jobs a week, and I say if we do them right, we have one hundred and twenty-five new salespeople every week talking about Ashcream. You know, and that's what we try to do. You know, is there anything you do to perpetuate? that talk or to turn customers into salespeople? Is there anything strategic you do or is it just focus on good service and kind of let the powers that be do the work? Yeah, we really focus on good service, you know, number one, from end to end experience, you know, and then we do some small touches like during, during the holidays, you know, we may leave, you know, a quick note that says, you know, happy holidays or something like that along with our invoice in the backyard, you know, if they're not at home, you know, little things like that we do do. You know, we, we may put a thank you card now after every job, you know, we'll just put a little thank you card, slip it in their door, you know, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, you know, on, on things where we mess up, <laughs> you know, you know, we send them a little $5 Starbucks card and we just say, Hey, we're sorry we messed up. We we're not perfect, but we're getting there and we're trying to learn. And that's fantastic because those people actually become raving fans. Once you do that, just a simple acknowledgement, you know, so it's not hard. It's really not hard. I just think sometimes we could get too cute with it, if you know what I mean. It's just a, you just keep it really simple. And, and also, I think you got to make sure that everybody in your staff knows that it's important. I think that's also really, really important. Everybody's got to know that you expect a five-star review on every job. And if, they, if something's not there, you fix it to where they get a five-star review. So what do you do when you don't get a five-star review on a job? Let's hear that one. <laughs> That's when they come into the lion's den, you know. <laughs> you know, it's it's actually really simple. Everybody knows in my in, in A stream that I'm expecting at least a four plus star review on every job. Okay. And they know that if they get anything three, two, or one star, that they're gonna hear from me and I'm not gonna be happy about it. So it's gotten to a point where when we get into our staff meetings and there's a one-star review. I'll have the technician or people in the office or whoever was responsible for that job. They'll call me a day ahead and say, hey, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Trying to soften the blow. Yeah, they, they soften the blow. They get ahead of it, which is great. That means they're thinking about it. And so that's all. I think it's about letting your staff know and your team know that it's really important to you. And I think once they know that, then they will start to perform towards it. And if they don't, they're going to understand and learn from it. And I think it's, that's, that's, you got to make it one of your initiatives that customer experience is critically important to us. And it always has been since day one, you know, of me buying a screen. I said, we want to be the best screen company to work for. We want to have the best customer service as far as screen businesses go. So those two initiatives were always number one. I agree that they have to be number one. I'll tell you, you know, even in the time that I've been doing it, relatively short time, but I've seen a handful of companies pop up. One of them, I'm not going to mention any names, but they all follow the same pattern and they're very sales, marketing, growth driven, and they just deliver horrible, horrible, horrible customer service. I I know some of them locally or what was them locally. And I can say that I would not use them or recommend them to my friends or family, despite my connections to the owner. And, you know, they, I mean, they they pop up quick and they generate millions and millions and millions of dollars a year 
in revenue real quick. I mean, in the first few years, you know, 50 million in three years or something like that. I mean, that's, you know, an annual run rate of 50 million, not total. The total is probably up, wow. you know, higher Amazing. than that. But their customer service is horrible and they exist and they kind of go on and they, you know, they, they get good at combating the bad reviews. So they still get some good reviews, but in the end, it doesn't work out for them. Something, it, it all comes to a head. And I've seen this, there are three examples I can think of right off the top of my head that I've seen play out since 2012, just like that. They grow, they balloon up really quick. They sell, 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 sell. You know, they make, they make my sales and marketing game, you know, <laughs> you know look, look like child's play. Not the marketing game, but the sales game, you know, and their whole thing is we're just going to get deposits on projects and figure out how to how to do it. But in the long run, that never works out. It always catches up to them and things come to a head. It always does, you know, and I think you decide you decide whether you want to run a sales organization for short term growth or you want to run something that's sustainable over a 20, 30 year period. And if you want to run something that's sustainable, there are just simply no shortcuts. You got to have a great reputation and you got to have everybody on your team taking care of the customer. Yeah. And that's what I say to a lot of people that come to me that want more leads. I get this all the time from what I call key man operations. You know, largely one guy running the show, he might have a few technicians or an install crew, maybe someone in the office, but by and large, it's one key man running a team of say 10 people or less. They come to me and they want more leads. They're like, yeah, if we could just get more leads, things would you know, be better. X, Y, and Z would happen. We get more leads, we get more revenue. Then I can finally hire a manager, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, look, you don't need more leads. You know, you're better off focusing your time on improving the team and customer experience that you have. And then once you've got that stuff in place, then go to town with the leads. But until you're in a place where you can really handle all the leads properly and make sure that everyone is happy and has a great experience with your company, you really have no business getting more leads. Correct. And, and if you get them, how are you going to service them? And, you know, I think the number one goal of, of any company is customer service. And, and I, I know you and I have discussed this in the past, but I always look at three areas of a company, right? So I look at sales. How can I increase my sales? S-O-C, SOC is my acronym for it, right? And then O is the operations. How can I make it more efficient and seamless? And C, a lot of people would think it's cash, but it's not. It's <laughs> That's what I was guessing it was. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually customer experience. So I'm always looking at those three areas of my business. And I know that if those three are... And, and I actually have a dashboard and I give it a green, yellow, red kind of thing. You know, it's arbitrary, but at least I have some kind of a system. And I know that if I keep those green majority of the time, <laughs> yeah. you know, nobody's perfect. You know, sometimes things are going to slip into yellows and things of that sort. But for the majority of the time, I keep SOC is green. Then I know that people are going to tell people and those people are going to tell more people. And eventually my company is going to grow, you know, so I keep it, I keep it really simple. And Maybe that's why I have the confidence to buy things that, that I know nothing about. But I do know about SOC and I do know about customer experience. Now, are you saying you have the confidence to buy the companies you know nothing about because you keep it simple or because of you focus on the SOC, just to clarify? Because I focus on the SOC and I have clarity. I know what makes companies stay and grow. Yeah. And to me, it's the SOC acronym that I use. And I don't care what company it is. I mean, I could go tomorrow and find a company in some other trade and I can implement SOC and I know that over time I will grow that business. <laughs> I, I'm going to adopt the SOC, but it's going to be a double C for sales, operations, customer experience, cash. Cash. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it, I mean, I could go into, 
I don't know, a plumbing company. And I know that if I do sock and keep it green all the mm-hmm. time, that it'll eventually going to grow, you know? So that's the systems that I have that I can implement into any company that I own. And I know reasonably I'm going to do well with it, you know? Absolutely. And I'll do the technicians do their thing and I'll do the office people do their thing and I'll do my sock and it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're keeping that sock, write that on the whiteboard now. Let's shift gears a little bit here. You know, well, at this point, I'm sure that you've had some hands-on experience with screen enclosures, but how do you manage the business? Because you are not there daily. You run a brokerage business as well. You know, I, I know you're not going into your screen enclosure office every day. You're not seeing your staff every day. How does, I don't know, what is a day or a week or a month in the life of a trades business owner as an investor look like? Yeah. So it's very simple. I have tag up meetings every morning for 15 minutes at seven o'clock while I'm walking. So you're there every morning at seven o'clock? No, no. Just a phone call. It's everyone calls into a call. So phone call meeting for everyone at 7 a.m.? Not the technicians because they're already out on the field, out on the job, right? So So just managers? Yeah. My office manager, my production manager, my estimator and me, right? So hold on. One, One question I got for you there. The office manager and the production manager, now, are they the same office manager and production manager that were around when you bought the business? No. No. All right. So let's go into that topic real quick here. So what happened with that office manager and that production manager? And then how did you replace them? It was very simple. You know, when you when you buy companies, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to lay your vision and you're going to have to trust your vision. And you're going to have employees that are going to buy into it and say, oh, this is the new owner and here's this great opportunity. And then you're going to have a few employees that are not going to buy into it and they're going to step off the bus. And you kind of, as an owner, I want them to step off the bus, you know? And in this instance, you know, we had the previous owners that maybe not as employee friendly in in some of the softer skills that I had, you know, into it. And when I laid my vision out at that time, the production manager and office manager that I inherited, right, were running their departments in ways that I will not agree to. Okay. <laughs> Talking bad to the employees, cursing people out, you know, little things like that. I was like, no, absolutely. That's not the new age cream. And they left. And, and it was a good thing for me because I got people now that, that buy into my vision and kind of implement. How long into it did, were they there? I mean, how long until they left? And was this, they left on their own accord or did you cut the cord? Yeah. Well, the production manager left on their own accord and, and we let the office manager go. Because after about 25 million warnings of, mm-hmm. you know, keep a professional and build trust and we work as a team, not them and us and, you know, the field and the office. And, you know, she really wasn't buying into my vision. So we had to cut the cord. Yep. Yeah. How long into it was it? How long after you bought it did you? Yeah. So the production manager was actually quite easy. It was three months and he left because, he, you know, just wasn't a good fit. And the office manager was there about a year, a little bit over a year. Gotcha. Yeah. So it wasn't, wasn't an overnight thing? No, 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 no. Visions take time. And, and, and as you implement them, you'll know. You know, you're going to sit in the office and you're going to know people that are on your team and people that are rolling their eyes, you know, when you say your vision and who are just giving it half an effort, you know, and you know, you can identify them and you want them out. <laughs> so let's jump back to the day in the life of the trades business investment owner. Yeah, sure. 7 a.m. 7 you're having that meeting with your two key managers and I think an estimator. So and my estimator. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And we have a very simple meeting. We just tee up the day and I just and I just ask for any customer recovery issues that I need to be aware of. Okay. Right? Yep. Very, very simple. 15 minute call. 
you know, 7 to 7.15. And then every Thursday, you know, at 4 o'clock, we have a staff meeting for about 30 minutes. And that's teeing up the next week, you know, so we just kind of prepare for what's going on next. Why not do that on a Friday? Because, you know, sometimes when we finish early on our Fridays, I don't want my guys to go home. I don't want them to hang around the office. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of my very first vision to be the best screen company in Orlando to work for. So sometimes Friday afternoons, when we get done a little bit early and my production manager wants to go home early, you know, go home. Gotcha. I need to be here. So it just just works out more conducive to the work environment. Hold them late on a Thursday, Friday when everything's done. No need to hang out around the office. Yeah, even my office staff sometimes, you know, if the phones are a little bit slow, you know, I'll take turns and I say, hey, you can go home at two today and yeah, much of free time. And then next time things are slow, I'll have somebody else go home. And, you know, so it's all about giving them a little bit of flexibility, but the job's got to get done. I also ask the other way when things are busy, you know, I ask them to stay late, you know, so it works both ways. So the Thursday meeting, why don't you walk us through that? What are you looking for? What are they saying? What are you teeing up for the next week? How does that, how does that go down? Yeah. So every Thursday meeting starts with things that we did well. So we always start the meeting with customer reviews, <laughs> you know? So we had five, five-star reviews, you know? So we will go through them and we will read them out. And so we always started with celebration. That's kind of how I always do it. Because during the week, you know, we just get beat up all the time, you know, especially (laughs) so many moving parts. So I always like to start Thursdays with a celebration and look at our reviews, right? So we go through that. Then I have all of my key performing performance indicators, my KPIs, and we go over each one of them. Okay. I made some notes on you. I have, let me see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of them. So I go through my eight KPIs. Eight KPIs. Yeah, we'll just walk through those numbers and make sure that everything is good. And then we just go around the horn and we just say, is there any customer recovery issues with estimating, any customer recovery issues with production, any customer recovery issues in the office? And then I always look at team morale and I always ask everybody, you know, how are they feeling? Everything's good. I ask my production manager, any of the technicians fighting? Are they feeling good about what they're doing? You know, things of that sort, right? And then we wrap it up. That's about it. Very simple. <laughs> a, lot, a lot going on there. Or not a lot going on, but a lot, a lot we can talk about here. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Here we go. Let's keep, yeah. keep on rolling, man. This is awesome. How long is this meeting lasting? I mean, because you're going through reviews, you're going through eight KPIs, which we're going to come back to that. We're also going to come back to the production manager, but you're going through reviews, eight KPIs, and then at the end, going around and talking about morale. How much time yeah. is this taking on a Thursday afternoon? 30 minutes. 30 minutes? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, everybody knows our vision, you know, there's no need for for me to micromanage the folks, you know, it's all about just looking at high level, you know, and and just making sure that things are not going out of whack. That's really what that means. Yeah. It's not about people reporting to me everything they did every hour of the day, you know, that's not what this is about. This is about high level. My estimator, for example, might say, Hey, I saw a couple of guys out there and they're estimating at a dollar five and you know we're losing a couple of bids because we may be too high. You know, so we look at really high level stuff. You know, those are the things we talk about during the meeting. Right on. And all but all of your staff is there. All the technicians are there? No, no, no. The technicians are always on the field. The technicians, I have a meeting with them once a month. Once a month, you know, okay. Meeting. Yeah. Because they're out on the field, you know. And so when I staff meeting, it's really the office staff, the estimator, and and my production manager. Gotcha. Okay. 
So you're, you're not bringing all the technicians into this KPI meeting. No, no, no. no, no. We, we could do a whole episode probably on your technician meeting. We're probably going to reschedule for that in the future. Meeting. Let's yeah. keep drilling down this weekly manager meeting, essentially. What are the eight KPIs that you got in there? Yeah, so I made a list and I'll just kind of go through them at a high level, right? So I look at, you know, the callbacks. So that tells me the quality of our technicians and the work we're doing, right? So I look at, we do about 100, 100 jobs, how many people call us and where we got to go back again. Over what period of time are you looking at this? So, I mean, callbacks, you're looking at callbacks for the prior week? Yes. We're looking at everything from the week before. So we look at it weekly. Okay. Yeah. We look at it every week, you know, and then we, we clear the slate out for Monday and we start again and then we clear it out. So every Monday okay. we start with zeros on the scoreboard and, and we then, go Monday. And then on Thursday though, you're looking at the prior week or the current? The prior week. We look at, we're one week behind, you know, okay. so we look, gotcha. yeah. yeah, that's how we look at it. So we look at callbacks, you know, I'm always looking to see, you know, who the technicians were getting callbacks from. I'm looking at those kinds of things. So if I look at the board and say we had two callbacks out of 100 jobs, I'm okay with it. You know, but if we say we had four callbacks that week, then we drill into it. We say, well, where are those callbacks coming from? What happened? Is there anything that we can do better? <laughs> you know, to, to, to get better at it. I look at the number of estimates that we're doing every day. Look at how far the estimator is booked out. It gives me an idea of my pipeline and the demand that's coming down the road. I look at production. I look at how far they're booked out. You know, are they five days booked out? Are they two weeks booked out? Are they one day booked out? You know, that gives me an idea of what my pipeline is looking like and what I, how I need to adjust my marketing. Do I need to run any specials? Do I need to run maybe an email blast to my previous clients? You know, things of that sort. Yep. So any others that we're leaving out there? We got how many days estimates are booked out? We got production. How many days production operations was booked out? We got estimates. I heard callbacks. The number of estimates we do per day. We do the number of callbacks. We look at how many jobs are getting rescheduled every day, you know, because we want, again, that comes with the whole customer experience. When we tell people we're going to be there, we want to be there and do the job. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And we're always looking at, you know, guys calling at two o'clock going, oh, I'm tired, you know, giving all kinds of excuses not to do jobs, you know. So I want to make sure that everybody finishes their list every day, no matter what. Absolutely. Okay, so that's one of those things. And then the number of truck that goes out, that gives me an idea of how we're staffed, whether all our trucks are going out all the time or, you know, what's going on there. And then I look at, you know, any customer recovery issues. And then we, you know, and like I said, we always start with, with how many five-star ratings and what kind of feedback we got. So those are the eight that I look at. Right on, right on. One final topic here before we wrap this up. Yeah, Your sure. production manager. Let's talk about how his compensation is structured because this comes up all the time in every every congregation of contractors, whether it's whether it's at a seminar, whether it's at lunch or commonly now in a Facebook group, how do you structure the compensation for your production manager? Yeah, so it's actually very, very simple. We do, he's got, he gets a salary. And then if we hit our numbers for the quarter, he gets quarterly bonuses. And if he doesn't, then he won't. So, and they're set up, you know, they would be like, Hey, we hit this number, you get a $5,000 bonus. What's an example of the number? Is it the number of work completed? Is it gross profit? Is it? It's, it? it's all the sales numbers. So I just keep it very simple on the top line, right? So if we have some amount of production and sales per quarter, then, then, then you're going to get a $5,000 bonus. I'm guessing in accounting terms that you, you'd be looking for earned revenue. It's just earned revenue, money yeah. in the bank. Yep, that's, okay. that's so pretty much it. So yeah. if he hits, you know, $100,000 completed, he gets this bonus. Correct. Gotcha. Correct. And then if and 
that's all I do. You know, other than that, I don't, I don't, I don't make it complicated. I make it very, very simple. And and if we don't hit it, I don't give it to them either. Yeah, you know, so it has to be an earned, an earned thing. You know. Yeah, I, I see eye to eye with you on that. I'll tell you guys, I see a lot of people that go bananas with this KPI stuff, and they've got these complex spreadsheets, and you need fifty freaking KPIs for this department, and that department, and yada 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 yada. I'm like you cannot, you physically cannot process this stuff as an average human being. I mean, like, let's be real. You know, you physically cannot remember all these numbers. You cannot focus on them. You cannot improve them. I mean, the way I see it and the way I like to think about this, if I were to, well, we do have this mapped out in org chart, but if I were to present it and kind of tell you guys all about it, you'd see that I focus on three KPIs at a top level, at a high level. And then for each role, one or two KPIs on that role. And you can change those KPIs as you need on a monthly basis. Maybe, you know, maybe for your operations, manager operations side of things, you need to focus on your labor efficiency rate, you know, and then maybe that kind of doesn't really become a priority, but you need to focus on just getting the work completed because you've just got so much work stacking up and piling on that the focus needs to be on total earned revenue as Google is using. But if you're trying to really, you know, cut costs and get things running efficiently, shift it to your labor efficiency rate, which the way I formulate that is total work completed divided by direct labor that's going into it. So how much work complete, how much revenue are you earning for every dollar that you are spending in direct labor? How efficiently are you using your labor? That's my favorite metric. I think KPIs have to be the most important, not all of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it has to be the most important in your business. And and I always recommend never ever to go over 12. Even eight, you know, when I look at it, it's a lot. You know, sometimes I wish there was three. Or, but I'm also running this business as, as an investor. So I like to have my, my pulse on you know, a few extra things just to know that it's there. That's why you need to add the extra C to SOC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may have to take a tip on that one and add no, that. Nothing is a better pulse than the actual cash that's in the bank account and growing that number. Right. Yeah, and growing it every day. But yeah, I mean, I have eight here and you know, that seems to work really well. You know, eight is a good number. You know, I don't like to have more than... 12 is really the max. And, and, and what you want to be afraid of is, you know, you have so many KPIs that you're not running your business. You're just watching those KPIs. That, that's what I was going to say. So many people come to me and, you know, they want to talk about KPIs and they'll tell me, well, this number is that. And then it went up and I'm like, okay, well, now that you know that, what are you going to do about it? Correct. And in some cases, there's nothing you can do. These are generally outside your business. Like I had one guy that was looking at the number of building permits that are issued for in his trade, right? So he'd, he'd pulled the county data and it was kind of putting these out in a graph. And it's cool. You can see the line going up and down. And I showed him how to make a simple moving average out of that. And you can use that, you know, as a better gauge of trend, et cetera. But I'm like, all right, now that you know that, what in the hell are you going to do differently? And the answer is, well, nothing. You know, I, I can't really do anything differently. I mean, I guess you could staff up or staff down. But you know, in his case, the market was in a downtrend, but he's selling more. I'm like, well, congratulations. You're doing better than the market. You know, you're, you're doing selling well, but what are you really going to do differently now that you know that number? And I choose not to focus on or worry about those numbers unless I plan on actively doing something to improve or control the number. Yeah. That's where having like a like a framework, like a sock or something like that. There's lots of them out there, you know. That yeah. Really, because if if it doesn't fall fall under those three categories, 
I don't even bother with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you don't, you don't have a, you know, a number for exterior per, or external permit data, you know, or you don't have an acronym for that one. So it's not in the Actually, sock. There is, there's, there's, there's a thing called drift for entrepreneurs and there's a lot of books and research done on it. I think anyone who's listening, Google it and look at this phenomena and drift is when it happens slowly, little by little by little. And it's actually a real phenomenon for entrepreneurs where they kind of start to lose focus, not five degrees at a time, but one-tenth of one degree at a time. But over time, they're totally looking somewhere where they shouldn't be looking. And there's a whole phenomenon of drift that, that you know, anyway, for, for folks that are listening, you know, there's a lot of books on Amazon on it. It, it makes it, it's a really fascinating subject of how there's so many distractions for an entrepreneur and how easy it is to get distracted. On that note, before we wind it down here, I will say, <laughs> I will say that the drift I see commonly is leads. Everybody focuses on leads when that is not the what what should be the core focus of your business. Correct. Yep. Correct. And leads are important. You got to have them, you know. But 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 your customers are even more important. The people you already have. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. So people get really, you know. Like I said, you know, you, the, the focus on leads without a, a great customer experience, you know, and that is not going to work. And that's a little bit of drift. It, you, you don't know why you exist in a way, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know? So <laughs> keep, keep that drift under control. Just focus on what is core to your actual business and what actually makes you money. That's my take on it. Correct. And there's all kinds of research done on drift. So anyone who's interested, go out there and just read on it. It's very fascinating. It, it helped me a lot to stay focused and keep things very, very simple. Right on, right on. On that note, Gokul, thank you for joining us on the Home Pro Success Show today. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks for having me, Corey. All right, buddy. You've reached the end of another episode of the Home Pro Success Podcast. Connect with us and join our collaborative Facebook group at homeprosuccess.com.